Welcome listeners to the regular First Things Podcast, the Editor's Desk. This is Rusty Vino. I am at the Editor's Desk. And with me is Hans Borsma, who teaches theology at Lashota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. And we're going to talk about his August-September issue essay, Saving Mankind. Welcome to the podcast, Hans. Thank you very much, Rusty. You begin with a paradoxical claim. Inclusive language, you write, inclusive language is exclusive. Exclusive language is inclusive. Explain this paradox. <laughs> yeah, it does sound somewhat somewhat strange uh, when, you, when you read that opening line to, to the article. I certainly can appreciate that. Um, but it is true, I think, that inclusive language is exclusive and exclusive language inclusive. Uh, let me first begin by, by making the main claim of the article, namely that the second one, that exclusive language is inclusive. Uh, that's the main point I want to make. Um, so-called exclusive language, words like man, mankind, uh, the, the, the strict use of pronouns such as he for both men and women, that sort of so-called exclusive language, mm. I argue in the article is actually inclusive um, because it includes linguistically both males and females, men and women. And theologically speaking, uh, it's important that we include all men and women male and female, uh, in Jesus Christ. So exclusive language is, for that reason, inclusive. And the linguistic use that we, that we have of, these, of, these, um, of, of pronouns such as he and, and word uh, nouns such as mankind is, for that reason, important, I think. Um, now the in- Sorry. Yeah, so it seems like... So... Uh... I mean, the, the thrust of the argument is if we cannot say, if we cannot, if we cannot imagine mankind as an inclusive concept, then we really can't imagine uh, being incorporated into Christ or participating in Christ's death and resurrection. Um, so it seems like incorporation or participation are really key concepts here. Absolutely. Um, at one point, I refer um, to to the late medieval um, discussion about nominalism versus realism, and the way that we understand that particular debate um, has everything to do with Christology. So the question ultimately is: um, Are realists correct? Are they right in saying that um, Christ incorporates in Himself all? men and women, because he is, as it were, the form of forms, as some of the medieval theologians would have put it. He's the form of forms who includes in himself um, everyone whom he has redeemed, male and female. Now, Jesus Christ, of course, is male, but that's exactly the point of the traditional inclusive language of mankind. Just as all are included in Adam, so all are are included in Christ, as St. Paul repeatedly puts it, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and so on. One can imagine a woman saying, I can't see myself in, you know, dot, 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 the language like he, his, or man, mankind. Um, and and your, your argument here is, hmm, this is a dangerous way of thinking. 
about 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 where you can see yourself. Um, because if you can't see yourself, yeah, that would be saying, well, so, so you can't then can't see yourself in Christ. Mm-hmm. Am, am I following the train of argument correctly here? You're following it correctly. It, it, that's exactly the, the point my article is making. I certainly can appreciate and understand why uh, a, a woman in today's culture might might feel that way and might make that argument because our culture is a fragmented an atomized culture mm. uh, that looks at people simply as individuals by themselves um, and doesn't look at individuals as primarily being incorporated in something larger than themselves. Uh, so I can appreciate and understand where such a person is coming from. But what I would just ask that person to, to perhaps do as a thought experiment is to follow through on the consequences of that. So if it is true that we cannot be included or rather do not want to be included in what we might think of as somebody else, mm-hmm. especially especially that somebody else being male, um, then, then what does that do for how we understand reality and how we, under, how, how we understand our relationships with one another? In other words, then it's simply a society that we have of individuals um, who have to deal with one another on the basis of power relationships. So it's not a, a, a traditional hierarchical understanding that's grounded in power. Hmm. Traditional hierarchical understanding is, is actually grounded in harmony, in the harmony of the cosmos, in beauty, in, in music. But it's, it's an atomized society where I refuse to be included in someone else, particularly if that someone else is of a, de- of a different gender. Um, it's such a society um, that ends up uh, basically having to impose one's power upon someone, somebody else, because it's all we've got. I mean, your, this piece is about, um, about language and, and um, the, the male-female language, but I see it also in family and marriage, uh, as well as community and nation. Uh, it's just, it is the case that we that are impoverished metaphysical imaginations, but we have a difficult time seeing ourselves as being, you know, I am obviously myself, an individual, but I'm also part of something. Yes. Um, and that, and that, you know, you say, you know, you're a Borsma, you're a Reno, you're a the family, um, the family is, and you do have, you know, men and women, they get married, they don't change, the woman doesn't change her name, or you get a hyphenated name, and the hyphenated name is kind of sui generis, I guess. It does hope, it's an effort to merge, but in, in fact, it creates a third, if you will, family. That's right. It does, uh, isn't it? So it is, it is a, it is a, a bit of a hard, you know, what I like about the piece is it forces, um, in this case, women to sort of see you can't have it all. Um, we can't have that incorporation and belonging and at the same time um, have, have a, our kind of, I don't know, our egalitarian um, idea about we, can, we all can be ourselves independently of each other. No, Sorry, I mean, but it does seem to open out in a lot of different directions. It, it, it has all sorts of repercussions. I mean, at one point in, in the article, I make the point that linguistic changes 
uh, are connected um, to, to bodily changes that we impose uh, upon people, uh, surgically speaking, because of, of transgender uh, issues that are coming up, have been coming up in the last little while. So it has repercussions, these, these linguistic changes, at least that's the point I'm trying to make in the article, has repercussions um, for, for areas that, that are way, way beyond language. Language is hugely important and we often underestimate it, but you, you're, you're right that it has to do with marriage. Uh, marriage is a relational thing. It has to do with how we understand authority within the state and how, how also societally we construct, quote unquote, that, that authority. Uh, what sort of structures we, 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 we strive toward as a society. What we tend to do in, in contemporary society, just to stick with the political for a moment, what I think we tend to do in contemporary society is increasingly move uh, toward a, a, a world that's run strictly by power that is increasingly totalitarian. And it's an inexorable drift, I think, and especially the pandemic has made clear that we, we, we inexorably move in that direction. It's inexorable mm. because, because if, if there are no webs of relationships that constitute us, that make us who we are, then we become dependent increasingly upon the fiat, upon the voluntaristic fiat of the authorities that are above us. Um, if, for example, to give you one example, if, if marriage if definition is, is something that's up for grabs and that we sort of construct rather than receive, um, then it becomes now incumbent upon the government. The government is forced almost, as it were, um, to impose its definition upon society. Um, that gives governments a great deal of power, whether they like it or not. Well, it also politicizes every aspect of life because we fight about the definition. Right. Uh, as opposed to if, if a great deal of what we do is honoring things as they are, so to speak, um, that's quite different from everything being raw material that we can then shape. Um, accordingly, yeah, I think headship. Headship is a uh, as a concept. Um, now, in the Christian world, it's primarily um, Ephesians five and the headship of the uh, uh, of the husband in the family, but it could be a political concept broadly construed. Um, yes. That that my our relation is one of the incorporation into a body. And the person with authority is responsible for, you know, honoring the integrity of the corporate body. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Appreciating the utility function of all the individual isolated, atomized members. Right. Because right. the totalitarianism yeah. you speak of doesn't necessarily have to be, have a motivation of domination. It could be a kind of totalitarianism of benevolence. You yes. Know, um, you know, either either um, the technocrat, I'm going to manage, you know, the utility of all these individual atomized members of society. I can do it better from above, so to speak, than just letting people fight it out, you know, on the ground. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. See, the, the, the language of headship that you mentioned is language that we're wary of because we worry about, about the, the, the power structures the hierarchical power structures that we've inherited 
from the past. And so we think of headship as, as innately, inherently oppressive and perhaps abusive. And right when one person is the head, other others are, are, are submitted. And that, mm. that gives gives the opportunity um, to exercise authority in, a, in, a, in an abusive manner. Now, that's not untrue. Well, it <laughs> it's, certainly it's, can be the case. It certainly can become that. And, and, and certainly that's a danger. Um, so the only argument I would, I would make to, to counter that is to say, when you have an atomized, nominalist metaphysic, such as our modern one, um, that abuse is baked into the system. So whereas in traditional understandings of marriage and of, of, of state authority, uh, the head, quote unquote, uh, could become abusive and at times did become abusive. It's, it's my understanding, at least, that an atomized understanding where we construct reality, where we construct language, where we construct reality, is, is, is a situation that invites and demands abuse. So... So we may think we've got rid of an authoritarian structure only to replace it with something that is, in fact, inherently totalitarian, cannot but become totalitarian. And I think we see that politically, whether it's from the left or the right, doesn't really matter. It, it is inherently totalitarian. Well, it, uh, I, I mean, I, you've, in many of your writings in recent years, called for a recovery of Christian Platonism. Um, when this is a participatory understanding of the human condition, um, and that we 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 become who we are insofar as we enter into these relationships, which are, if you will, laid down in reality rather than imposed upon us. Is that right. fair the characterization? Of it's, it's, it's a great characterization. It's very helpful. So what, what a participatory metaphysic does, or as I sometimes also call it, sacramental ontology, what it does um, is it looks at, at, at the things that we observe with, with the senses, um, the appearances of things. Uh, it looks at those as participating in, in greater realities than themselves. And for Christians, that means in the eternal word itself, which is as a called it earlier, the form of forms. Now that, that, that makes for, for a, an understanding of reality that is harmonious in character because lower levels participate in higher levels. That's, that's the traditional, I think, Christian Platonist understanding of things. Lower levels participate and have their being in reality, come to their own, as it were, by participating in something greater than themselves. Um, if you give yourself to that, and if you, if, if you want indeed to be included in Jesus Christ as the true man, as the true humanity, true man, um, what that means is you become more truly your own. In fact, on the Christian understanding, you become divinized. Uh, the greatest of all ends, you, you become divinized. Uh, that's not an oppressive thing. That's a liberating thing. That gives you true freedom. I mean, that's the logic of Ephesians 5. Yeah. In other words, the... The marital bond between the man and the woman is perfected. You know, it's a it 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 reflects the mystery of Christ's uh, nuptial union to us uh, in the church, and that you know the the 
the headship of the husband is more, the more Christ-like it becomes in, in sacrifice for the good of the family, the more perfect, um, if you will, the headship becomes. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. I think we see that in traditional notions of political authority as a, as a, a stewardship or as a service to the body politic. Um, we do have a, in our time, a, a, an attempt to, if you will, solve the problems of abuse of power, or excuse me, abuse of authority by saying all authority has to be checked by reason. Um, and it, because we live in the scientific understanding of reason, reason really means, it kind of demands this nominalist metaphysics uh, so that things can be counted and measured. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, which is different from, there's a kind of a measuring by counting versus a measuring by the by the form of the thing. And yeah, does it live up to that which it is meant to be, as opposed to how many of them are there? Yeah, it's a technocratic rather than, than, than a, a, a love-guided understanding of, of reality. Uh, it aims to be neutral. It aims to be utilitarian. But the result is that, that the heart gets removed, the heart of love. Mm -hmm. uh, relationships are, more, are, are about more than just measuring things and, 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 and trying to arrange things so that they can run smoothly, as it were. <laughs> no, they're about giving oneself to the other. Um, well, yeah. What helped me in the piece is that it helped me understand that the language about man and mankind evolved. I mean, the typical narrative, it's patriarchal imposition in the way that men exercise power over women. But you're, you expose the sense in which actually within the biblical frame of reference, it it has a... Uh, Christological um, uh, uh, point of of orientation, so it evolved and and in a way to reflect a much larger network of commitments that have nothing to do with uh, with immediately with the relation of men and women, everything to do with our uh, our relationship between beings to God, mm -hmm. um, and this is in contrast to what we say, and I think you're very persuasive in the piece saying that. We're, we haven't witnessed the evolution of language in our lifetime, yours and my lifetime. On the contrary, we've, witn we've witnessed a very aggressive social engineering of language, quite intentional yes. and very rapid. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like we went from thee and thou to you and, uh, and, and yours, you know, um, mm -hmm. which did happen over a couple hundred years. Yes. Um, and this is, this is a 30-year project now. Yes, maybe, that's maybe right. a little bit longer, but not much yeah. longer. Now, just for the record, I love the D and R language, um, but but we won't go there. <laughs> no, I, um, I, uh, I was just talking to Dana Joya earlier today about uh, the poetic um, richness of the yeah. and thou. You know, spare thou those who confess their faults, restore thou those who are penitent. Uh, you, you is a kind of an ugly word, actually. It's hard <laughs> to make it. What do you rhyme you with? <laughs> That's right. Where, where's the where's the alliteration potential? I actually right? think in, in in the the language of you, uh, you, you have the, the the kind of flattening, the modern kind of flattening of horizons um, that, that that the and thou um, inherently had had within it. There's a harmony and a melody, a melodiousness within within the traditional language 
um, that I think our contemporary language um, uh, has eroded somewhat. Well, not but, coincidental uh, harmony of, of, of sound, given that right. the la it's an intimate language that's supposed to reflect the harmony of our, of our most intimate relationships. Yeah. Exactly. But more to your point in terms of the, the, the rapidity and, and the political motivation of, of these, of, of the more recent changes, which, which indeed went much, much more quickly than the change from leave out to you. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's deliberate social engineering. What you have with a leave out to you, um, that's by and large not deliberate. That's a, a more or less quote unquote natural evolution of, of, of linguistic development. What you have to the contrary with the use of, say, the so-called inclusive she mm -hmm. or, or, or the plural they to refer to one person, that's, that's a very deliberate uh, social justice endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. We want to rebalance power relationships in doing so. And not only power relationships, um, but particularly with the use of they, we're deliberately obfuscating um, the male-female binary um, understanding of reality. And we're deliberately obscuring the fact that God, the fact, that the truth that God makes us as male and female. Um, so, so something far more than just linguistic use is, is at stake. And typically, those who tend to... to, to um, advocate and use these kinds of changes, do it for those reasons. Uh, either those reasons or simply, well, I need to adapt if I want to be heard. But, but the, initial, the initial reason is, is social justice. And we need to be aware of what's happening when, when we encounter these kinds of changes. And, and sometimes um, need to say, no, actually, the traditional use is much richer also here. And, and not only richer, but, but more true to the Christological understanding of reality. You give the example of a new translation of Psalm 1. The traditional translation, happy is the man. Um, the new translation, happy are those. You right. point out that St. Augustine uh, uh, lights upon happy is the man as a chance to introduce a Christological uh, interpretation of that psalm. But happy are those immediately obscures the, the 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 figural openness of a great deal of the Bible to a Christological reading. Yeah, that, that yeah. was pretty powerful. Just think, wow, why are we impoverishing ourselves so unnecessarily? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sad thing. Um, I, I love what Augustine does. I mean, his he, you know his, his wide ranging reflections on the Psalms. The very beginning of it, Psalm one, and his very opening words there are are about. Uh, he, in his very opening words there, he asks the question, who is the man? Well, you and I, reading, say, reading some modern translation that is happy are those, we cannot even ask that question, <laughs> who is the man? Even if we, we ended up disagreeing with St. Augustine and, and saying, no, it, we should not read it Christologically. For example, Hillary, you know, he did not read Christologically. He explicitly disagreed with that, with that interpretation, right. <laughs> interestingly. You know, so even if you said, no, Christ is not, not the man, Fine, you know, we can, we can talk about that, we can debate it, very interesting discussion. But, but um, there is an underlying metaphysic that Hillary and Augustine shared, mm -hmm. and that the Church Fathers broadly shared, and not only the Church Fathers for that matter, but 
much of the subsequent Christian tradition shared, and and that is that that we can all read ourselves into that song. And the reason the reason is that the man is inclusive somehow. The the ish, the the Hebrew ish man is inclusive somehow. So it's not contemporary language. It's traditional language that's inclusive and was so for the Christian tradition. Humanity. You argue that in itself, fine. No, but you're not you're not going to stand up and object to somebody using the word humanity instead of mankind. But it seems like the thrust of your piece is beware of saying that you cannot or should not say mankind. Exactly. So there are certain languages, um, the German and the Dutch, for example, uh, that have a word for our man or mankind um, that doesn't have the sort of gender specificity that our word man does have, and that also the Hebrew ish and the, the Greek word anthropos have. There, those words, those languages, Greek, Hebrew, English, um, they have a word that both has gender specificity for maleness, but it also has an inclusivity, including including females. Mm -hmm. uh, German, Dutch, mensch, mens, doesn't have that. It doesn't have the gender specificity. It's a broader term. Our word humanity is like that. Human, there's nothing male, particularly male about that. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with any of that. Um, so you would never hear me object to the word humanity. It's a perfectly normal word, and it's perfectly legitimate to use it. It's just that what I am objecting to is the deliberate destruction, the linguistic sort of iconoclasm that says, that, you know, for, for political reasons, for social justice reasons, we need to get rid of mankind. No, actually, because it's tremendously rich. It, it, it says something about, about our inclusion as, as all human beings in, in Jesus Christ as the new man, as the second Adam. Well, thank you so much for your piece. Uh, I should let the listeners know that at First Things Magazine, we neither require nor prohibit <laughs> but we certainly uh, don't allow for compulsive use of his or her. If you want to use it once, that's fine, but not this kind of compulsive use. So I, I, I share, and I'm just so grateful that you're vindicating our editorial policy here at First Thing. So thanks so much for the piece, and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation, and it's a delight to support First Things in this. <laughs>